waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly young eisendraft and michael berger bring different kinds of expertise Polly is an author psychologist union analyst longtime zen practitioner couple therapist and founder of dialogue therapy and real dialogue michael berger is an entrepreneur an expert in psychedelics a spiritual practitioner of jewishness a skeptic a real dialogue specialist and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary improbable collapse the demolition of our republic Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. A conversation with Donald Hoffman, PhD, Conscious Realism, Real Dialogue, and Human Subjectivity. What do you believe about consciousness? Do you think consciousness is produced by your brain? Perhaps you're aware that there is no scientific evidence that consciousness arises from a material source like a brain. In this podcast, Polly and Mike dive into a complex conversation with scientist and seeker Donald Hoffman, who's an American cognitive scientist and psychologist, as well as a popular science writer. He is professor of cognitive sciences, philosophy, and computer science at the University of California, Irvine. In his current scientific investigations, Donald Hoffman proposes that the fundamental building blocks of reality are not particles or atoms, but conscious agents. He also advocates for a radical shift in our understanding of the universe, suggesting that evolution has shaped our perception to prioritize survival rather than truth. This thought-provoking perspective challenges our beliefs about reality and raises profound questions about the nature of consciousness itself. In this conversation, we explore the meanings of space-time, dialogue, the nature of reality, as well as consciousness and the way it expands and changes through our relationships with each other. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Hoffman. Thank you very much, Mike and Polly. Thank you for having me on. Hi, Don. It's great to see you again. I want to start with a question, which is really more of a prompt or an invitation. If you could summarize for our listeners 
kind of an overview of conscious realism, which is the the theory that you investigate and have originated, and bring us up to date about its findings. Okay, certainly. So most scientists are physicalists, and that is they assume that space-time and objects inside space-time are the fundamental nature of reality. This is the foundation of the standard model of physics with its bosons, leptons, and quarks, and so forth. And it's also the foundation that my cognitive neuroscience colleagues use when they're studying consciousness. They assume that physical systems are fundamental and consciousness is a latecomer, and that somehow complex physical systems like brains give rise to conscious experiences. But conscious realism says that that, that metaphysics, the assumption that space-time is fundamental and physical objects inside space-time is fundamental, that metaphysical assumption is false. And it's quite fascinating that high-energy theoretical physicists are now saying the same thing. This is relatively recent. In the last 20 years so or so, 20, 25 years, they're saying um, that space-time is doomed. And that's that's a quote. Space-time is doomed from... Uh, David Gross, a Nobel Prize winner for his work on uh, quantum chromodynamics, Nima Arkani Ahmed, who's at the Institute for Advanced Study, they're saying for technical reasons, not for spiritual reasons, but for technical reasons, that, that space-time is not fundamental, and therefore objects in, inside space-time are not fundamental. And they're not just waving their hands up and you know saying, oh boy, well, it's all over. No, no, they're, they're actually, this is great. They, they're looking for new structures beyond space-time, and they're finding them. We can talk about that. But conscious realism it says what the high energy theoretical physicists are saying. Space-time is doomed and objects in space-time are doomed. They are not fundamental and they will not be the foundation for science going forward. What I propose now, this okay, now what I'm about to say just uh, departs from what the physicists are saying. So I've said, you know, top level where we agree, what they're doing is they're finding mathematical structures beyond space-time. Those are really interesting. And, and I'm also looking at these structures beyond space-time. But what I'm proposing is a different metaphysics, a, a, a different reality beyond space-time, that it, it's consciousness. And and not just the words consciousness. I mean, I'm, I'm a scientist, so I need to have a mathematical model. So, so I have a mathematical model, which with all proper humility is just a mathematical model. It's not the truth. It's just a, a, you know, a mathematical model. That's the way science works. I, I'm not saying that my theory is correct or right. It's hopefully a good next baby step um, in, in, in science beyond space-time. But the idea of this baby step is to use the mathematics of Markov chains to model conscious agents that have experiences and that interact with each other and, as a result of the interaction, um, affect the experiences of other conscious agents. So think about this conscious realist view as like a, a large network, a large social network of interacting conscious agents, like the Twitterverse. And you might tweet and have followers and be and have other people that you're following. Right. And, and that's sort of what I'm saying in this this conscious realism thing. There's a bunch of conscious agents. They they um, affect the experiences of other conscious agents. And and so it's a big, vast social network. And space time and what we call the physical world is just a device that con some conscious agents use to to deal with the complexity. Right. If you have a, a huge social network like the Twitterverse, there's millions of users and billions of tweets. It, it's impossible for you to read all the tweets or, or to grok all the things that are going on in that, you know, the millions of, so you need, what we have are these nice little user interfaces. We, we look at what's trending and so forth and, and get little hints about the complexity of what's going on. And so space-time then is just a headset that that some conscious agents use. It's a VR headset that they use to help 
you know, dumb things down because it's, it's too complicated. There, you know, there's all these millions of countless conscious agents out there that you're interacting with. So you need something to simplify it so you can understand what's going on. And that's what space-time is. So, so to summarize, conscious realism says space-time is not fundamental. It's just a headset. It's, it's a, a, a convenient way that we use to interact with this a vast network of interacting conscious agents. So I want to ask a question that I think intersects around the issues of conscious agents and science and dialogue. So science develops by investigating hypotheses and especially, you know, null hypotheses, disproving hypotheses, right? It's a method of investigating. And that investigation requires dialogue. It requires a back and forth communication that's sort of somehow trustworthy. You know, Thomas Kuhn talks about the communities of scientists and the ways they investigate through making hypotheses and talking to each other. In a certain way, it seems to me from your theory that every one of these conscious agents, from the simplest to the most complex, through its kind of icon or interface theory of perception, has a hypothesis about what's real and what's not real, in a sense, like a scientist, you know, but not with, let's say, the degree of thoughtfulness or objectivity, but so that there are all these interactions going on within space-time that are producing different kinds of interface theories of perception. And, and I would say like the cockroaches are having their own and, and the dogs are having theirs and the humans are having theirs. And so the humans get into evolutionary theory and the theory of space-time and they get into Einstein and then post-Einstein and lots of things. But what, what I'm wondering is the way that conscious realism looks at those interactions in terms of how how they weigh in on whatever it is that is emerging that we call space-time, you know? Does the cockroach dialogue or hypothesis get involved with the human one? And then finally, this is sort of the other side of this issue of scientific investigation. Hypothesis testing and being able to test, you know, the kind of mathematical theory, and I think really always for science, it really is mathematical, isn't it? I mean, primarily the proofs are mathematical, um, but to do that kind of testing requires integrity. It requires honesty. It requires people, you know, actually reporting their findings in an honest way. So there's there's a kind of of ethics that often doesn't get languaged into the human system that is required for science to develop its theories. And I, you know, and so here, because now I've become familiar with your work, I have these more complex uh, questions, but I wonder how integrity or honesty, truth-telling fits in with this, you know, human universe of conscious agents generating scientific theory. So there are a couple of questions buried in there, but one of them is, you know, just the interaction of beings that are conscious. And the other one, in terms of science, testing hypotheses, where does integrity fit in? So I, I, I wanted to, uh, I know this is not, you know, an official question, but I, I've been wanting to ask this. So it just, sure. it just kind of uh, came on board. Well, you're, you're right that, that scientists deal in theories and they do experiments to test those theories. 
and and the theories in in many cases are mathematically precise. Sometimes a science is not yet in the position to make really strong mathematical uh, models, but but usually that that comes at some point in the science. And and when you have these mathematical models, what what you one thing to note about these scientific theories is that they they make certain assumptions. So every theory says, grant me these assumptions. And then it says, if you grant me these assumptions and I can make those assumptions mathematically precise, then I can explain all this other fun stuff. And so, and you, I can do it with mathematical precision. And the math is there to show you the scope of your assumptions. What, what can those assumptions actually buy you? What can you do with them? And also the limits. The mathematics also shows you the limits, right? For Einstein's mathematics, um, together with that of quantum theory, actually tell us that space-time, which is a fundamental assumption of Einstein and, and quantum theory, that, that space-time is doomed. It, it, it actually oh. tells us the limit of that assumption. It's doomed at precisely 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and 10 to the minus 43 seconds. It no longer is coherent. Mm -hmm. so, so there's part of the integrity, right, is when you're, when you're not just bloviating and, and talking, when you're saying, here's my precise theory, and here's precisely where it stops. It stops at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and 10 to the minus 43 seconds. When you get there, then my theory can't take you any further. That, so that's part of it. And of course, then the, the integrity comes where other scientists have to, of course, learn the mathematics. And that's a non-trivial barrier to, for most people to learn the mathematics. I know a few people that I'm very jealous of for whom that's not a barrier, but <laughs> it's a tough barrier. So that requires, and then to actually evaluate the mathematics and see that if it's logically coherent and if the you know, conclusions follow from the premises. So there's a, so in, there's an integrity check there, and the mathematics helps with that integrity check. But then when you come to empirical predictions, mm -hmm. then you have the theorists and the experimentalists having to interact. So now the, the experimentalists have to, there's an integrity there because the, the experimentalists need to understand what their predictions of the theorists are, and they have to talk back and forth so that the theorist says, yeah, yeah your experiment will test my theory, or no, you need to change it in this way to have a real test. So, and and usually, like in some big experiments, like at the Large Hadron Collider, where they're doing particle collisions, there are hundreds or thousands of people involved mm -hmm. in an experiment. So there's a it's it's a, a big coordination, and there again, integrity is a big part of the whole thing. Where you, for example, they might have two different teams of experimentalists going after the same thing, and they don't talk to each other because you mm -hmm. want to see if the mm -hmm. two teams get the same answer, and they might even not let themselves see the data until it's all collected. They, so that there's no way that you can be spudging things. Oh, I don't like that. Well, let me change this. Per no, no, you, you, you do your experiment. You, you collect the data, but you don't get to look at it until you unwrap it. And then the other aspect of the integrity is that only if your result, in the case of physics, for example, is what they call five sigma, a five sigma mm -hmm. result. It, it, the, the probability that you got this result by chance is infinitesimal. Mm -hmm one in millions, then they will say that this is uh, a, a real a real thing. But you, of course, need to have, um, in, in things like that, you need to have integrity at, at all levels. The theory, building mm -hmm. the experimental apparatus, actually the collection process, the, the analysis, analysis of the data, and then having people double check every as, aspect of it. So, so yes, it, it's, it, integrity is required at every step. But there is some, you know, I think most scientists are, of course, just genuine searchers after, you know, the next yeah. good theory and really want to, so, so the integrity is not really an issue for them. But if, if integrity was an issue, if someone 
had some tendency to want to cheat, there's uh, another aspect of it, and that is you will be found out. No. If you cheat, you will be found out uh, eventually. You, you may be able to have a good career for a decade or something like that, but eventually you're going to be found out and you won't get away with it. So so, so there, there's that because, see, and this is what's, what's unique about science is human beings have had theories for thousands of years, but not mathematical theories. That's right. mostly... You know, the, the big takeoff is after Galileo, basically, where we started doing mathematical theory. With mathematical theories, the, you, you see the scope and the limits of your theory. And, and, and you also can't hand wave and say, I didn't mean that. Well, no, you, you wrote down this equation. Mm -hmm. That's what you meant. And, and, and you, know, you, can't, you can't sort of hand wave anymore. So it's very, very powerful because you have a precise language, which we've never, you know, just words, words of natural language are, are great. And we use them all the time. Scientists use them all the time. But you can always wiggle around. Oh, I didn't really, you know, my theory, that's not what I really said. And you see that kind of nonsense going on in history where, where people are dodging and weaving as opposed to, no, here it is, it's mathematically precise. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, you know, and, 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 and there's not much hiding. So that's all part of the integrity. A very, very precise language is, a, is not a trivial part of the integrity because you're, you're saying precisely what you're what what you're proposing and that does it gives you no wiggle room later on well i didn't really mean that you can't do that kind of nonsense whereas with natural language people do that all the time and it's the human ego tends to like to do that well in the social sciences which is what i've been in and you know and did my research in psychology and jane lovinger directed my dissertation she was a great investigator and scientist the mathematical precision is just not there you know there there are of course, statistical tests and so on, but with the way multivariate analysis works now, which is called data mining, you know, you can really demonstrate statistically lots of things. But I sure. I thought that from what you said previously and what you're saying now, you do seem to consider mathematics to be a different kind of language, like set apart, typically, from the sort of other kinds of language used for reporting because right. it seems more precise and it can be tested more closely. And I wondered whether then mathematics for you is at a different level of truth. By and large, what I'm teaching and what I'm interested in is not mathematically precise. Yeah. Sure. Right. Well, yes. Now, and, and you're right that, you know, there are tricks that people can do like data mining to try to find results that that maybe aren't really there and 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 there, that's again part of the integrity thing and and psychology is is particularly vulnerable to that so you're absolutely yeah. right about that on the other hand because we have a mathematically precise notion of statistics and we know exactly mm -hmm. when we talk about data mining we, we can say with mathematical precision what you should do and what you should not do and right. so in many cases what we do is we go back and we find papers and go oh no 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 that's so again, you can you can do bad work for a while and get away with it for a while, but eventually it, it will catch up. In terms of is science is mathematics a different language than than natural language? What's remarkable about mathematics is the absolute precision. Once you have your intuition, so I'll, I'll take an example of Einstein. So Einstein, when he was doing his theory of gravity, he in I think 1907 had the big idea. The big idea was if I was in an elevator, standing on a scale. And I was weighing myself, and all of a sudden the cable was cut, and the elevator went into free fall. All of a sudden, my weight would be zero on the scale. That was the big insight. Hmm. Now it mm -hmm. took Einstein several years, maybe eight years or something like that. To, and he's Einstein, right? So this is this hmm. is he's not Hoffman. He's not he's Einstein. He's a really smart dude. So he it took him eight years to turn that into mathematics, and and, and he published it in like 1915 or something like that. And so 
So he struggled and struggled to take this intuition, which anybody could say, oh, that's a great intuition. I must be an Einstein too. Well, no, no, no. It took Einstein eight years to turn that into the field equations, which have revolutionized our understanding of space-time. A year after he published it, Schwarzschild, a German soldier actually in World War I, solved the, his equations and discovered what we call black holes. Mm. Now, Einstein didn't like it. He didn't mm. He didn't think about black holes. He didn't know that his equations were going to predict black holes. And he, he didn't believe in black holes. So here's the key. The theory becomes the teacher. The person who actually wrote down the theory becomes the student. Mm -hmm. And that almost never happens with natural language because it doesn't have the precision to come back and tell you what you didn't catch logically. So that's where, so that's what I love about science. As soon as I write down, I am now a student of my theory of conscious realism because it's uh -huh. mathematics. So I actually now go in there uh, to study and understand what that theory entails. So I, I I can't make it up anymore. I mean, I can add, but but to the theory that is the central part of the theory, I now am a student of that. And if I don't like it, I'm going to have to rechange that whole theory right? if I think it contradicts um, evidence and so forth. So it's in that sense that that mathematics is is a quantum step upwards in, in terms of scientific um, theories. Now, in psychology, which, of course, is, is my field, you're, you're right that, that psychology has been slower to move into mathematical models. But in, in cognitive science, we're, we're doing lots of now mathematical models for learning and memory and problem solving and intelligence and 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 not just on the neural basis of it, but even just math abstract models of how human cognition works. That aspect of psychology is now in, in cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience is becoming highly mathematical, very, very sophisticated mathematical models um, that, that make non-trivial predictions. And it's not just what everybody's grandmother knows. It's it's really, uh -huh. really uh -huh. quite. So so psychology is, is slower because, you know, human cognition and perception and, and, and uh, emotions are are complicated. They're much more complicated than than particles, for example. And so that so it's taken long longer. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I want to open this up for for Mike to come in, and we want to open up to other issues about subjectivity. But I think the idea of hypothesis testing, and also of of having a theory, I think those ideas are pretty close to human development in general from the earliest sort of sensory motor testing of the environment that the infant does, all the way to love when you're mm -hmm. you're sort of trying to test the other person's intentions towards you, you know, right. trying to figure out, do they have sincere intentions and so on. So I think the model is there. It's not as precise as it is mathematically. Part of the problem, and I think this again begins to be a problem that seems to suffuse itself through this whole issue of space-time is the problem of telling the truth or integrity or the advantages that people have in trying to obscure the truth. You know, I mean, the the idea of that lying, for example, does indicate a smarter young kid, you know, than the kids who don't lie. Because lying in the beginning seems like a pretty good strategy. You know, it's just, you're just manipulating words. You're not changing anything. So I, I just, I mean, partly what I have wondered about in thinking about this interactive network of conscious agents and your, and your agents, they perceive and then they decide and they act. So it's, an, it's not a determined system. Right. It's always emergent. It's always changing as a result of that, I assume, you know, from what my reading is of that deciding piece in there. 
perceived aside act. Right. So this this whole thing is evolving. This whole sort of space time and the theory about it, it's evolving within first person human experience, although other beings enter into that experience too. But there seems to be something about truth telling, truth, integrity that is involved from top to bottom in the ways that humans, let's say, can determine what's real. You know, what's like people say, is that real? <laughs> you know, what what do you mean real? Well, you know, are you telling me the truth or is this the truth? And so, I mean, one thing that we deal a lot with in this real dialogue is trying to get people to speak subjectively and to understand that their differences are human-based differences. It's not about something out there, but our experience as to what the truth is. And so, you know, in that model, we don't have to kill each other mm -hmm. in order to have effects on each other. We can talk, we can use words, we can use ideas, hypotheses, to go back and forth to find the truth. And the truth is always emergent, it's never settled. And that's scientific truth, as well as I think truth between people. But there's something about telling the truth, understanding the role of integrity. Mathematics will do that for you essentially, because it's precise enough. But most of the time, you know, humans aren't using mathematic, mathematical right. hypotheses. But they're still using hypotheses, I think. I, I think hypothesis testing is what we're doing much of the time when we're interacting, and especially when there's conflict or you know that kind of thing. So I just I had always wondered whether within the model the issue of integrity arises, and apparently it does, but not in the way I was necessarily thinking about it, that it was somehow key to you know perceive, decide, act. Right. In that model, it's any kind of dynamics could evolve, right? You could have deceptive dynamics and or right. So it's it's general enough that it allows uh, you know honesty or or deception as part of the mathematics that one can, of course, design networks in which honesty is a, fe a feature of the network. But you can mm -hmm. also design networks in which deception right. is part of it. But what you your your question does bring two other points up. I want to just mention in in response. One is. And this may be a surprise. I don't think that there is a scientific theory of everything. Mm -hmm. There's Same no such thing as a scientific theory of everything. And then there mm -hmm. never will be in principle mm -hmm. because every scientific theory has assumptions. Right. And those assumptions yeah. are the miracles of the theory. That's what the assumption, right. that's what the theory does not explain. It assumes. And you might say, well, of course, I can get a deeper theory that explains those assumptions. Indeed, you, you, you can. And that new theory will have its own assumptions. And so you have this endless, it's turtles all the way down, right? Assumptions okay. all the way down. And so... My own attitude about science is it's the best tool we have for precise theory building. There, we don't have a better tool for precise theory building as human beings. It is the best. And the theories are not the truth. Mm -hmm. They are a perspective, a useful... Most theories that scientists come up with are, are just wrong, right? Mm -hmm. you know? But very so every once in a while you get one that's a very useful perspective, like a Newton or an Einstein, you know, a James Clerk Maxwell. You get some someone who comes up with something. We go, oh wow, it's not the final truth, but boy, it sure is useful. Boy, that that's really so. It, it's a useful perspective on 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 things. So that, that's I think an, an important distinction. And the other thing I just mentioned is, in terms of 
deception and truth, evolution by natural selection, which mm -hmm. is our, our current best scientific theory about human, the, the evolution of human behavior and, and animal behavior in general. That theory, and, and I love the theory, and again, it's not the final answer, it's not the truth, but it's, we don't have, right now, science has no better theory than evolution by natural selection to des describe the evolutionary origins of human interaction and, and honesty and deception and so forth. And what you find from that theory is that there are strong selection pressures to deceive, to lie, mm -hmm. not just for humans, but mm -hmm. plants lie to bees. Mm -hmm. Right, the plants lie. They pretend that the you know, orchids will pretend that there's something that the bee can mate with, mm -hmm. and, and so deception goes on all all the time. So there are strong, but it's not an intentional. It's not intentional deception, in the sense that there isn't the sense of I know I am lying, but rather I'm lying, so that humans can know that they're doing this for a particular outcome, whereas the orchid is doing it. That, that's right. We see lying and knowing that you're lying in humans, perhaps also in other primates as, as well. And there may be other, mm -hmm. I, I think that we could find, but with flowers, it's, I, I, I agree, it's, it's, it's completely debatable whether the flower is consciously trying to lie. I, I just, and, and that gets this interface idea, right? My interface gives me a lot of insight into humans and their psychology, a right. little bit into primates, even less into, you know, ants. Right. And when I get right. down to flowers, I have to give up. I, I wouldn't exclude the possibility of cognitive deception, but but I have no evidence for it, right? I just, I think my interface has sort of given up when I'm dealing with plants to to understand any conscious aspect of, of their behavior. There are strong um, this is one of the big themes that it was a big surprise from from evolutionary theory that that mm -hmm. in some sense deception is an ex and lying is an extremely powerful strategy that we use all the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and it, even makeup yeah. is a lie. I just want to understand part of the aspect of your theory with conscious agents. If I understood correctly, there isn't necessarily a need in your theory for a conscious self. In other words, at what level is the perceived decide act? It can be uh, potentially unconscious. That's right. There could there need not be some kind of self involved. It could just literally be experiences without an experience of a, a me that's having those experiences. The so you know your your interpretation is exactly right, but but it turns out so two two things to say about that. First, we, we did that on purpose because as a scientist, I want my fundamental theory to be as sparse as possible. I don't want to throw in the kitchen sink in my definitions. Mm -hmm. I want to have as minimal definitions as I possible can, as I possibly can, and then say, I'll build all this other stuff. So there's no notion of learning, memory, problem solving, intelligence, self in the foundational mathematics of consciousness. There's only two things, experiences, and those experiences affect the experiences of other agents. That's it. I, I, that's, I wanted to keep it absolutely minimal on purpose. And then that forces us to use that sparse framework to then build networks of conscious agents that might have a self, that might have new learning or memory, problem-solving intelligence. Now, it turns out it's, it's straightforward to prove that these networks of conscious agents are computationally universal. That, that means anything that you could build with a neural network, you can also build with a conscious agent network. Mm. So, so I could build a chat GPT if I wanted to, and if I had enough time and energy and data, I could build a chat GPT out of, of conscious agent networks. They're computationally universal. 
So I can I can do anything I, I want to basically. But but they're even more powerful than that because they they're actually beyond computation as well in their capabilities. The the um, the, the Markovian networks and the measurable sets on which the probabilities are defined need not be computable sets. So 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 that's why right up front we knew that we weren't putting a self in there. And I think it's interesting. We, we don't really need a self in the foundation, right? We do need the experiences and we do need a framework in which experiences can arise, which is really interesting from a spiritual point of view. So we mathematically, we actually had to put down that which allows experiences to arise as part of our mathematics. But beyond that, we didn't really need anything else. And so learning memory, problem solving, the self, intelligence, all these things are, are going to emerge out of networks of conscious agents. And I think also in terms of the flower, I guess, in one sense, what we understand now, for example, about what's going on with my, mycelial networks beneath the ground, yes. that you see these are coherent, integrated systems that communicate bidirectionally. It seems certain species of trees will send nutrition to and can identify their offspring to help them grow. And they warn them about certain I guess, potential invaders. So there is a much deeper level within which these systems do communicate and whether or not, quote, they have intention is outside of the scope of this, but you can have these systems even without a sense of self, they really require awareness. They're, they seem to be exceedingly intelligent. We, we think that the, you know, these trees and mushrooms and things are just bumps and logs and they're dumb as a dumb as a stump and and it turns out that there is hard negotiation going on underneath the ground the uh, there there it's like hard trading going on i'll give you these nutrients if you give me that it's 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 no nonsense down there and and plants have gotten a bad rap there's a, a researcher named monica gogliano who has uh, i highly recommend her work she's found that plants can do classical conditioning <laughs> they they actually can can learn by by classical conditioning and they so so we we under uh, underestimated the plants and that's why i mean i i was agreeing earlier on that that we can't say that the flowers are deceiving but but i can't rule it out yet either <laughs> right right you know there's a there's a sort of a wrench that i want to throw in here that is based on your theory actually okay. which is that we're attributing from the human interface Right. And so all of this attribution about this is doing this for that, and this is doing that for this, and so on, is our own attribution. And the attribution of intentionality is well known from Gestalt psychology onward. You just have to see a stick moving in a certain way or a line moving next to another line, and you say, right. oh, that line is making that other line move. Right. Or, you know, this is one that I like, you know, a, a rock drops on your head, and it hurts, but you look up and see a person sitting in the tree and you feel that person dropped the rock, even though that person might be sitting there and the foot kicked the rock off of a branch. I mean, our, our desire as humans to attribute intentionality is very, very high. Mm -hmm. And when we attribute it in a way that includes another human, we have a whole different reaction than if we think it happened to us as a result of the root of the plant. So our system, our way of thinking has buried within it a lot of attribution about intentionality. And that's in our icon, you know, uh, you say, you know, maybe, maybe the human body is an icon. I mean, I really agree with you on all of these things, but I think 
Also, humans make the mistake of thinking the body is what we call the self. Right. And, and that mistake then also includes a lot of attribution about what selves are doing to each other. So I guess I really just wanted to throw it in that unfortunately, as humans, one of our preoccupations is to attribute intentionality. And so I often wonder in some of these theories about plants, some of the theories about roots and mushrooms and so on, these are human theories. If it were possible for us to know the mushroom theory, you know, it might look quite different because uh, you know, the, there's an interactive network and the interactive network is more complex than we can comprehend. And there may be aspects to that network that really function quite differently from what we're attributing. I sort of, I, I agree a lot with uh, Yuval Harari's theory of humans having this large attribution about fictional things. So like, you know, that we we believe what we're told about something that we didn't see and that we haven't experienced. I don't think there's anything that I know about in my dog or any of my domestic animals that is similar. In other words, I can't say to the dog, I saw your friend this morning and he took your bone and the dog is going to be angry at that friend the next time he sees the friend. You know, I mean, we have, because of the human self, we have a lot of characteristics that have to do with what, you know, I would just call fictional attributions, you know, that we, we, we believe, for example, if I believe that I'm, you know, I'm related to all Americans, that somehow that stands for something, that's an attribution that has nothing to do with anything except my, my belief, but I might fight for it, you know. So to me, that sets us apart from animals, from plants, from a lot of other, uh, I, what I would say, you know, they're conscious or they're sentient. I don't think they're conscious in the way that I am conscious of being an attributional being <laughs> that does all this stuff. Uh, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you that when I when we talk about, you know, in, informally plants deceiving each other or driving hard bargains and so forth, we're using human language for for the plants and that's 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 not a um scientific theory to say it to you know, to put it in that language so i i completely agree you know what what you can see are just the you know the the, the, the transport of carbon and other nutrients and and notice that they satisfy certain optimal economic conditions which is really interesting so you, you can see those, those kinds of things and, and that's a little bit more objective but yeah the attribution of intentionality I agree is is fallible. I, I think that we have evidence in some species where we can see that there's intentional deception. Well, in monkeys, yeah, for yeah, example, yeah, right. Yeah, I I think in certain kinds of I mean, I've heard about I don't know some kind of snake I can't remember that spits up blood and pretends to be dead when a hawk flies over and you know it looks very much like what we would call intentional deception. Right, a piece about. A fox and a, I think a, a a crow, where the 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 fox has caught a mouse, and and but hasn't eaten it yet, and the crow wants it. So what the mm -hmm. crow does is pretend to be wounded. So it's just there, it's flopping. Yeah. And the 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 fox is going, wow, 
a, a crow is a much bigger meal than this little mouse. I'm going for the crow. And so he yeah. keeps going and, and drags him further, further, and so far away that then the crow can fly and get the mouse, get the mouse. back to it. And right. so, so there, right. I mean, again, you, you could argue and say, well, no, that's just, you know, an evolved behavior and there's mm -hmm. no cognition on the part of the crow. You might, you, but, but it's also open to the possibility that there is, you know, an intention there. Who, who knows? But, but I would also say that, you know, this, the issue of the ego is, is an important one. And part of the, the issue of the ego in humans is that I'll use the virtual reality metaphor that we talked about like earlier, you know, that space-time is just a headset. If space-time is just a headset, it's not the truth. Space-time is doomed. It's not a fundamental right. reality. Then everything I see inside space, in space-time, all the objects are, are just things in my headset. And mm -hmm. I, like, if I'm playing a, a, like Grand Theft Auto, a virtual reality Grand Theft Auto, and I look over to the right and I see a, a Ferrari, a red Ferrari, well, that red Ferrari only exists when I look at it. You know, right. I render it, and then I, and then as soon as I look away, there is no red Ferrari. And, and if you look in the supercomputer, there's no red Ferrari inside the supercomputer that's running the game. So that the, the Ferrari only exists when I look at it. Now, the same thing is true of my body. Mm -hmm. It exists when I perceive it, and it doesn't exist when I don't. Right. It's it's my avatar in my headset. It's an illusion, as you were saying. It's an illusion. The ego is the illusion of identifying with that avatar. Right. When, when you identify with that avatar. That's and, and and by the way, that's where physicalist science comes from. Physicalist science says space-time is fundamental, and I am my avatar. I am this little body inside space-time. Right. And the spiritual traditions are telling us, uh, no, no, you're right. not the avatar. You are the consciousness that is making this whole visual experience, this whole sensory experience possible, including that of the avatar. Right. So brains, for example, do not exist. Right. They're not perceived, and brains cause none of our behaviors. And none of our activities. Now, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. I've published with collaborators, EEG, fMRI. I'm very interested in, in the brain because I think the brain is far more complicated. Cognitive neuroscience is far more complicated than we than we thought. We look inside heads and we see brains. We think, okay, so neurons and brains and so forth, that's the reality. No, no, no. That's the interface description of a much more complicated reality. The interface is there to dumb things down. So the brain that we see is a dumbed down description of something that's far more complicated so we thought the brain was complicated it's nothing compared to what we're going to have to understand we have to mm -hmm. reverse engineer the brain and, and neuroscience to understand what's beyond space-time that we see as a projection as as the brain so so you can see that what i'm what's what i'm suggesting here is it's not just like good spiritual stuff to 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 recognize that space-time is not fundamental and you're not your body if you don't recognize that you're getting in the way of science for yeah. science to progress, we have to get rid of the illusion that our bodies are what we are and that our brains cause our behaviors. These are just interface, dumbed down descriptions of something far more complicated. Until science understands that, they have the blinkers on. If science has the blinkers on and can't get on with the business of finding out the structures beyond our headset. Spiritual traditions have been there for thousands of years, but they haven't had the math, right? You need the math to really do the scientific approach to go beyond yeah. space. As soon as scientists really understand that space-time is doomed, they, they understand what the spiritual traditions have been saying for thousands of years, then the blinkers are off and science is going to really transform human society. I can't wait. Thank you for listening to Waking Up Is Not Enough. To explore further, go to www.realdialogue.com where you can download our free app and become a part of our online community. Purchase any course in the Real Dialogue app, 
and you'll receive an email invitation to our monthly conversation where Polly and Mike hold an Ask Me Anything monthly on Tuesdays. Waking Up Is Not Enough is produced by Chris Coltrane and is available on all major podcast channels. And I also would like to just take a moment to announce the upcoming foundational training in Real Dialogue and Dialogue Therapy being held in Stowe, Vermont at the Trap Lodge. Session one begins November 30th. There are three four-day sessions in the next training. Session one is November 30th to December 3rd. Session two will be February 1st through 4th. And session three will be April 18th to the 21st of 2024. For more information, you can go to realdialogue.com and from the menu, select foundational training. All the details are there. If you have any questions about the training or anything in the podcast, you can email me at mike at realdialogue.com.